So now that we talked to Detective Cogburn about the details of how we found these skeletal remains out in an open field, uh, we wanted to go through the process again about how we can get from these skeletal remains to an actual rendering where we can show you what this person might have looked like. And for that, we have the most talented forensic artist in the country here with us today. Again, uh, Detective Kirk Crick, thank you so much for being here again. Thank you for having me back. Sure. Uh, so in this case, we found uh, Detective Cogburn says that this uh, particular uh, male was, uh, you know, the remains were found in an open field. They weren't buried in a grave like the last one was. Uh, but we did find more, there, there were more pieces of evidence along with the remains. So uh, we found uh, an, a, a very unique watch. We found some clothing. Uh, a lot of things that in the last episode you said you gather from the evidence from the scene to, you know, you, you have all these data points from all these places, uh, but some of the, the real interesting data points are from when detectives gather this, in, this, uh, this material, you know, from the scene. So, Ken, first of all, I wanted to talk about your background. You know, last episode, we didn't get into who you were or, you know, your education and how you got to this point as uh, one of the most uh, talented forensic artists uh, in the country. Tell us about your field and how many how many of you are there in the country and uh, tell us how lucky we are, basically. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> um, forensic art is a small field. It's a niche for sure. And it's not because there isn't um, interest in the field. Certainly, it's very interesting. The problem is that there are very limited career opportunities. Um, smaller departments typically rely on larger departments, like county or state, uh, for assistance, rather than employing full-time forensic artists themselves. And in turn, those positions, the artists that are within the large agencies, um, there's typically only one and they remain there for the duration of their entire career. Mm -hmm. So waiting 25 to 30 years for a job opening is a long time, right. and it makes it very, very difficult for anyone even to, even to break into the field. Um, there is one accredited forensic organization that certifies forensic artists, and that's the International Association for Identification, or mm -hmm. the IAI. Currently, the IAI has 28 certified forensic artists internationally listed on their roster. Wow. 25. In yeah, internationally. 25 of them are in the U.S. That's primarily because the IA is U.S.-based. Right. Um, and two of which, myself and Paul Moody, work here for the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office. Wow, that's incredible. So that's a huge percentage of forensic artists work here at the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office. How did you get here? How, you know, what... How did you, uh, you know, what kind of things did you study to, to be able to become a forensic artist? Uh, in addition to having very limited ability to become employed, it's almost a catch-22 to become certified. In order to work in some of these larger agencies, they want you to be certified. In order to become certified, you need to have experience. Wow. So yeah. it becomes very difficult. The road for me to get here was very lengthy. Uh, it took me in total probably a, 
about almost eight years. Wow. And that was um, working under a forensic artist initially in Broward Sheriff's Office. That's where I initially started mm. uh, in 2008. And he had been the sketch artist there. He didn't do reconstructions and he didn't do um, age progressions. He, he was the old school sketch cop. He's the guy <laughs> with the artist. pencil. He did it by pencil, oh, um, wow. which we still do for suspect composites. Um, but he had been doing that for 25 years. So when I came on, I expressed my interest. Um, he just kind of took me under his wing. And then I spent several years learning how to do eyewitness interviews and drawing suspect composites under him. I then had to send myself to training because I was not employed as in, in forensics at all. Uh, I was actually employed in the mounted unit with the horses. Oh, and it wow. had nothing to do with what I was trying to do. So right. they didn't take, they wouldn't take the budget to send me down in Broward um, to do that training to, to get, get into that field. So I sent myself through training. I trained with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children twice. Wow. Um, I went out to Cleveland uh, University in Ohio um, and did some cranial facial reconstruction courses out there. Wow. And did some. I did a lot of interning uh, under the composite art with John, and over the years, started developing cases in order to become certified. Once I did get certified, um, I made contact with Paul Moody, who is the forensic artist up here. Right. And honestly, if it wasn't uh, for him, and the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office, really really understanding how we can help cases and putting um, uh, just really supportive of what we do. I probably would not be here with all that invested time working full-time as forensic artist, but Palm Beach County has been incredibly supportive of what we do and have given us the means even to progress beyond what in the field is currently being done. And that's why we're kind of above um, we go above and beyond in our field right now in these standards. Well, that's incredible. And a lot of that uh, merit goes to Sheriff Rick Bradshaw, who uh, kind of is special in understanding the needs of the county and what, uh, you know, technologies and experience and scientists need to uh, be a part of our team in order to best solve these cases. So that is incredible uh, we are so lucky to have you and Paul Moody. Paul Moody has been around for, for a while, and we love everything that he's ever done. He's one of the most interesting people I know. Uh, maybe, and we'll have him here in the podcast one day because he has a wealth of experience and knowledge. Um, but thank you for you know being part of the family and helping us solve cases like this one. So uh, going back to this case... Um, tell us what we're looking at here in, you know, we've been looking at this in the last episode, we had this, uh, prop, so to, so to speak, uh, here with us as you explain certain things, but can you tell us exactly who this is? <laughs> so the skull that I have here is actually our 1976, um, the actual skull for that individual. So this is the skull of the actual person that uh, was found, the skeletal remains that we found in this particular case. Yes. So when I learned of that, I was pretty um, taken aback because I thought it was just a prop. But no, this is the actual person. 
So walk me through this particular case. We talked about, you know, having certain items that we found that might help you render uh, this graphic of this individual. Um, how did that process start for you? Uh, similar to the first case I was talking about, I mean, it's vital that I go through all the information. But I love in cases like this where we have some other items, like we had the watch and uh, these kind of things always I will put with the reconstruction or alongside of the reconstruction. Um, because typically if you view an image, you might say, oh, okay, it sort of looks like so-and-so. But if you view the image with other items that you can associate with that person, you have a much higher likelihood of recognition being sparked by someone who might have known him. Uh, the hardest part, I'll be honest with these cases, is I can make a, um, a great reconstruction that's reasonably similar to the individual in all aspects, but if the right people aren't seeing it that might have recognized this person, then it doesn't, it may not help us. Mm -hmm. um, this is why it's so important to do what you guys are doing, these podcasts and doing media releases, uh, because the more people that can see these cases and see the faces and, and might have, um, might be able to provide information of someone that they knew that went missing or someone they knew they knew went missing, you know, right. down the line. These are the leads that we need to help identify who these people are. And for those who are just listening, we do have a Facebook where this, you can see the skull and we also have a YouTube channel. The Facebook is Palm Beach County Cold Cases. And the YouTube channel is David. PBSO David, yeah. PBSO David, in case you want to see that. So, um, you know, we're looking at a side-by-side -side here of the skull and what you created. Um, now, by the way, what kind of what kind of tools do you use to design uh, this uh, artwork? Uh, so I use computer manipulating software like Photoshop. These typically what I do after I. Uh, prep the skull and photograph it. I bring it into the computer and then I will start to collect reference images based on the ethnicity, the age, um, and the gender of that individual. And then I will start compositing or building piece by piece um, the features themselves and how they place and then manipulate them to correlate to the bony structure. Mm. Was there anything particularly uh, difficult or um, interesting about this particular uh, reconstruction? You know, it's funny when you look between this reconstruction and the last one, just how different two skulls can be. I know you had said previously, if I was looking at two skulls, I might not be able to see what you see. But you can see even in this particular reconstruction and from the skull itself, this individual had very, very unique kind of structure. He was very muscular or built and had a very strong jawline, mm -hmm. had a very strong brow ridge, um, a bit of uh, deeper set eyes. These are all things you can actually see in the bone itself. And you can see as you reconstruct it, how the features correlate to um, the bone and mm -hmm. how the face contours are different even between this one and the last. And it gives this unique you know, these unique traits that just start to kind of come together. And sometimes I'll look at the skull and I don't immediately picture the face. It's like the face starts to 
starts to build and become a person as I do each individual part and start looking at the characteristics of each section of bone. And then it starts to become the face of this individual. So, so for example, you're talking about different pieces. So uh, particularly the nose, I find it incredibly interesting to recreate because for me, all the skulls have the same hole there. How do you create something uh, that's mostly cartilage and, and skin from looking at a skull like that? It just baffles me. It's a great question. A lot of people have it. Um, as I said earlier with the, um, the features correlating, the width of the nose actually will correlate with the width of that opening. Um, mm. There are measurements that we take based on a couple different areas of the nose. One is this bone up here. Before it goes into cartilage, there's a, your nasal bone that. there. Yeah. And the other is it might be difficult to see on the skull unless you really zoom in on it if you're able to do so. I don't know if I can show you where I'm pointing, but there's a, a small bone. It's called your nasal spine. It's If you can see it in here, it's... Oh, I see. Yeah. Right down here. Very small. Yeah, that actually can tell you a lot about the tip of the nose and the length of the nose because you can use that nasal spine to help measure length um, in correlation with the top bone. Okay, so if it's if it's higher up, then you know it's a smaller nose. So it does correlate like that. So if that little nasal spine is slightly turned up, it tells you that the cartilage in the nose followed that bone. It was an upturned nose. If it was pointed down, similarly, it would tell you that the nose was downturned. If that bone was wide versus a narrow nasal spine, it would tell you that there was a lot of weight that was being held on that bone. So that's how we, when I say that I assess and observe the bone, those are the things that I'm looking at. Um, I look to see the strength of the bone and where muscles attach because it, it really does tell you a lot. Wow, so, so you literally go to every single piece of this skull and recreate individually this, that, that, that piece. So it's not like, you know, like you said, you're not looking at the skull and seeing what this person might look like. You're recreating, you know, piece by piece uh, and, and rendering it on, on the tools and technologies that you have. Uh, so you, you... That, that's that's pretty incredible um, and I'm sure that there you know every piece of bone uh, has those kind of features where if you know it's a little like this then you create uh, that's so walk us through again these uh, through, through these markers that you have how do you determine the length of these markers so the markers themselves as I said previously there's a um, a pre-made chart that's already mm -hmm. been done by um, former anthropologists and people who have studied the actual soft tissue of remains from the bone to the exterior part of the tissue. These are um, charts that are categorized by ethnicity, uh, primarily by ethnicity and by gender. It also has a subcategory for weight. So if you found clothes on the remains that were um, indicate that the person was thin or obese, 
then you would have a different set of markers to help um, with the contours of the face. It's an approximation based on several studies of mm -hmm. measuring soft tissue. Wow, interesting. So, um, if it, would, would you be able to determine if a person was uh, obese or not? I mean, what, what indications would you have? Because I mean, I, I, I'm assuming that there, you know, there's there's a lot more soft tissue if you you know are higher in weight, and that that might change you know the way that you create you know these markers. I mean, um, how would you know? Absolutely. Well, if um, clothes being the obvious, oh, right, if right. it was not, if there was no clothes at the at the scene. The other way to get an indication of this, and it's not always, it's sometimes you'll get this, is um, in the forensic anthropologist or the medical examiner's reports. Now, when they're studying bones, it's similar to the things that I'm looking at is what they look at. That's one of the areas that I've trained in, just not to the extent that they've trained in to make formal assessments. Um, your bone can tell you a lot of things. It can tell you if you had arthritis when you were alive. It can tell you if you had a bone disease by the structure and the quality of the bone. It can tell you if you were carrying a lot of weight in certain areas because the density of the bone will be different. Wow. So those are, um, those are the indicators and the things that I look for when I comb through these reports. And let me tell you, I take a lot of time to go through them to really get the idea of what this individual could have looked like. So to get an idea of the anthropologist report, uh, they might tell you that this person was either overweight or not, uh, kind of what the age of the person would be. Like they, they can tell from the bone if the person was an older or younger person based on, I'm guessing, bone density or... Uh, they determine, um, they have a lot of different areas that they make those assessments. And the quality of their assessment, again, relies on what they have. In some cases, we only have a few bones that were that were um, located, not the full skeleton. Mm. Obviously, if they have the full skeleton, they have a lot of areas to assess um, ethnicity or gender mm. even, or um, age. They can use teeth to determine in some cases age because, mm. you know, uh, teeth change over different years. You right. have different molars that come up or... The enamel even. Um, there are also areas on the skull they look at the cranial sutures that can help determine age as well. They do a lot of measurements off different bones, long bones, that help them make those determinations as well. Wow. Incredible. Well, if anybody out there uh, recognizes uh, this person, uh, like we talked about with Doc, uh, Detective Cogburn, uh, this was kind of like a big, stocky squarish guy, pretty muscular. Um, we urge anybody uh, to contact us um, and either if it was a relative or a friend, um, you know, you can see the level of details that we go through in order to get this information out, to trigger some sort of memories, um, and we can appreciate the level of work that you do and research into creating this kind of artwork. It is, it is an actual art, um, and and I think, uh, you know, it's it's the perfect mix between art and science. You guys are incredible in in doing this, and we we thank you again for being here, and to uh, 
the lead podcast and we hope to have you again with another case and hopefully we can uh, share your information and have people contact us with any kind of tips so that we can solve this case. Thanks for being here. Yes, thank you. Hope to see you again soon. All right.